Galatians 6.17, one verse today, Galatians 6.17, I've always been intrigued by this one verse as the Apostle Paul is signing off his letter to the Galatians. He speaks of something remarkably, specifically, where he says, I'm going to let my scars do the talking. You understand, scars tell a story. Every single one of us will bear many scars in life, both physical, the ones we can see, and those metaphorically, the ones we cannot see. Every single scar you bear tells a story of suffering. I have a scar on my left knee, not going to show it to you, but I lost all of my leg modeling contracts earlier this year because I had a chainsaw accident. I almost cut my leg off, so I've got a scar right here across my knee. Uh, It's a scar of suffering, a scar where a wound once was. On top of that scar, there's another scar, an ACLU injury, 2004, from skiing. I had an ACL reconstruction, have another scar on that knee, have a similar scar on the other knee, opposite, 1987, a football injury, ACL injury once again, a whole reconstruction. I've got a scar on this shoulder, six inches long, football injury, 1988. I have a screw in my shoulder that long to this day from a former injury. You see, a scar tells the story of an injury, a story of suffering. Got a scar right here. Sometimes I forget it's there. I'm 6'6". People look up at me. I hardly ever see this angle from right here. They say, Pastor Phil, how did you get that scar? I forgot it was there. They see it every time they look at me as they're looking up. I said, well, it's football, 1986. I took a cheap shot, a blind side, a helmet to the chin. Uh, seven stitches later, there I am again. You see, we all bear these scars. I have a scar right here in my thumb. I had my first pocket knife. I'm 10 years of age. I'm whittling on a stick. I'm whittling the wrong way. I have a scar on that thumb, another scar on that same thumb. Not going to tell you how I got that one. But they all tell a story. Guess what? Paul is telling a story in this one verse. His scars are telling a story of suffering. Look at what it says, Galatians 6, 17. He is literally saying goodbye to the Galatians. He's signing off this letter. He says these words, I I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, the scars of the Lord Jesus. He says, let no one from now on bother me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. See, he's answering his critics in Galatia. The Apostle Paul was always coming under criticism, not just from without, but from within. False teachers would try to undo what the Apostle Paul had done. They're always questioning his authority as an apostle. You know what he's saying when he says, from no, 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 nobody bother me. He says, I'm done talking. I'm done with this conversation. From now on, I'll let my scars do the talking, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You show me your scars, I'll show you my scars. My scars say enough about my commitment to Jesus, that I'm going to follow Jesus, that I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. And friends, this is a reality. When you look in the ancient world, the ancient pagan world was changed Not simply by what the Christians said, but by what they did. They were changed by the scars of the early Christians. It was Tertullian in 195 AD who'd been born a pagan that converted to become a Christian. He is the one that is now famous for saying that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. In other words, the ancient pagans were changed when they saw the scars of the early Christians. And I would say today that in all probability, the world is still watching, but they're not being changed by what they see. 
because they don't see any scars when they look at you and me. See, I'm convinced the problem in modern American church is not simply uh, that, uh, that we don't have enough training. As a matter of fact, the training is better maybe than it's ever been. It's not that we don't have great seminaries like this one right here in our city. We have, uh, in some ways, better seminaries than ever. And I'm so thankful for Midwestern. It's not that we don't have the advantages of modern technology. I mean, it's not that we can't get on a plane and go to bed on another kind on the same day. No, we have so many things today the early church didn't have, but I want you to see what they had that we don't have. They had power. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. They were living in the power of Acts 1-8 because they were willing to bear the scars, the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And I'm just convinced that maybe, though I know that in this institution, and certainly not an abundant life, we don't preach the prosperity theology I mean, the lollipop theology, the hot tub religion, you know what I mean. Well, you know, come to Jesus, you'll be rich, thin, healthy, and wealthy, all right? That's not what we preach. On the other hand, we all live in this bubble of prosperity called Western society. And consequently, I think maybe it's distorted our view of what God owes us and that what God ought to do. And so consequently, we have a a theology that says, if I'm really in the will of God, then I should never have to suffer. And I want you to see today that sometimes you're going to suffer, not because you're out of the will of God, but because you're actually in the will of God. Not for doing anything wrong, but for doing everything right. You're going to bear the scars of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm convinced maybe we have a powerless church in some cases is because we have forgotten that Christianity is about a cross. Now, we all know about the cross of Christ. Of course, the cross is central to our faith, that Jesus died for us. But sometimes, I think maybe we have forgotten that there's also another cross, the cross on which we have died for him. You see, we use terms that you don't even find in Scripture, like, you know, come to Jesus, make a commitment to Jesus. Uh, Be a committed follower of Jesus. But did you know that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever ask us for a commitment? Nowhere in the New Testament does God ever ask us to make a commitment. No, what God asks us for is not a commitment, but a cross. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his commitment. That's not what he said, is it? If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. Now listen, we think that's just a metaphor, but Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically. No, his first century followers were very familiar with a cross. They were very familiar with the imagery because they had seen one crucifixion after another after another. In Jesus' day, when he said those words in Luke 9, 23, a cross is not something you wore, it is something you bore on the way to your own execution. A cross was not something that was shiny. It was not a thing of beauty. It was a thing that was bloody. It was brutal. It was ugly. And what Jesus was saying was clear. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and die to yourself. You see, he was inviting them on the Calvary road of suffering. And I want you to see this happened already as a Christian. If indeed you've been born again, 
you were crucified with him. Spiritually speaking, you were in him 2,000 years ago as Jesus was crucified, which means you died with him. That is your positional reality already. Galatians 2.20, the apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You guys know this. You go to Midwestern. I know you know these verses, Romans 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that the old man, the old self, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. You see, 2,000 years ago, God placed you in him, and because you were in him, you died with him, you were crucified with him, and I want you to begin to see yourself in the co-crucifixion. Yes, Jesus died for you. The question is today, will you die for him too? You see, that is always the question. And this demands more than a commitment. This demands consecration. You see, what the New Testament is about, what does it mean to be a Christian? It does not mean make a commitment to Jesus. You know what it means? It means take up your cross and consecrate your life to him. Consecration, not a term we use a lot in modern American vernacular, even in Christianity. Consecration is just another way of saying crucifixion. Consecration, it came from the Old Testament. You guys know the story. In the ancient days, the ancient Hebrews, they would bring their offering a turtle dove, a ram, or a lamb, and they would bring it to the tabernacle or the temple. They would present it to the priest. The priest would put it on the altar, and he would consecrate that offering to God. Now, in consecrating that offering to God, guess what he would do with that turtle dove, that ram, that lamb? Yeah, it was going to be bloody. It was going to be ugly. Aren't you glad we're not living in the old covenant? Because otherwise you'd have to show up to church with a knife in one hand and a lamb in the other. Amen? Yeah, it's not nearly as ugly and bloody. But what happens? They consecrate it, and then they would kill it. You see, that is the implication of consecration. Whatever you're consecrated to is that which you're willing to die for, that which you're willing to give your life for. So you begin to see why nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus call us to a commitment. You know why? Because commitments come and go. Think of all the things you were committed to 10 years ago that you're not committed to today. I can think today of things I used to be committed to, I'm no longer committed to, because commitments come and go. Here's the reality. I'm committed to a lot of things in life, but I'm consecrated to only a few things in life. I'm only willing to give my life for a few things, even though I'm committed to a lot of things. And this is why I've watched a lot of people come and go in 22 years of ministry. They started to follow Jesus. They were really committed to following Jesus, but the nature of a commitment is eventually the cost will get too high. And that's why some people turned away because they never actually came and died. It's true in the ministry. Listen, some of you are being called to the ministry. And I'm trying to tell you, if you're only committed, the day will come, you will quit because the cost will be too high. And that is why Jesus has an invitation and the call is to come and die. It's different than a commitment. Hey guys, I am committed. For example, I'm committed 
to cheering for the Kansas Jayhawks? Rock Chuck? Anyone? Are there no godly people at Midwestern after all, Dr. Allen? Really? Here, I'm committed to the Jayhawks. You know why? I got blood and sweat equity in the Kansas football program. Oh, yeah, I'm committed. I was going to cheer for them again this year, even though I was convinced they would go 1-10 again. I'm committed. I'm not a Fairweather fan. They're my team. But here's the point. I'm not going to die for the Jayhawks. I'll die for Jesus. Uh, I'm committed to going on vacation next year, taking my family on vacation. I'm so committed, I've already put down a payment on the VRBO. I mean, I'm committed. I paid my money. We're going. But here's the point. I'm not going to die if I don't go on vacation. I'm not going to lay down my life if I can't go on vacation. You see, that's the difference between consecration and a commitment. And I'm suggesting you today that in spite of all that we have in church life today, bigger but budgets, bigger buildings, better technology, better training. The church is still powerless to change society. As a matter of fact, the thing that God put in the world to change the world, sometimes it's the world getting into the church and changing the church. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the secret to the early church and the power of the early church is they were not committed, they were consecrated. They understood exactly the invitation that Jesus was making. And you can see it in the mission. I mean, the central linchpin of the book of Acts, Acts 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to see this truth is embedded right there in the Acts 1-8 commission. You shall receive power. That word power is the word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You shall receive power. Listen, you don't think the gospel is powerful. Stick a piece of dynamite in somebody's hand, light the fuse, and see if it doesn't change their life. Oh, there's power. Uh, Dr. Allen quoted Ephesians 3.20 just today as we read it together. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the dunamis, the dynamite power that lives within us. Jesus was promising the power of God that would come and live within you as a child of God, the power of God, the dunamis power that lives within us all to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think, and I want you to see, we forfeit the power because we're not willing to be a martyr. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be, here's the word Jesus used, martis, the word translated as witness. The same word from which we get the word martyr. His followers literally heard him say, you shall be martyrs for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the early church was full of supernatural power because the early church was full of people who were willing to be martyrs, people who literally laid down their life for the gospel cause. And I want you to see, to the degree you have fully died is the degree you will fully come alive life. Die a little, live a lot. Die completely, live in the power of God supernaturally. 
You see, that's the implication of the crucified life. When the apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, watch this. He said, nevertheless, nevertheless, I live. There's the paradox of the Christian life. He said, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. See, Jesus came to live in you, but now he wants to live through you. And for a lot of Christians, Jesus lives in them, but he still doesn't live through them, which is why we never live in all the power and the promises promised to us by the New Testament. Think about what Jesus said. I've come to give you life, and you can have it more abundantly. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Praise be to God. He caused us to live triumphantly. 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who caused us to live victoriously. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see, these are the New Testaments that ought to describe the normal Christian life. Life abundantly, not a life without adversity, but life abundantly, life triumphantly, life victoriously, a life of freedom and victory and liberty. But so much of the time, what do we do? We settle for mediocrity. We live in complacency. We live in apathy, if not complete captivity. And the reason why is we made a commitment, but we're not consecrated. We understand there's a cross on which Christ died, but we've never applied the cross on which we died. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now watch this. Positionally, you've been crucified already, but now you have to apply it practically. The same Paul that said, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. That is history. He also said in 1 Corinthians 15.31, I die daily. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 9.23, take up your cross daily. It is not a one and done. It's coming back and doing it over and over again. Today, I choose to die, to lay down my life so that I can live now in the power of the resurrected Christ. So you don't get to the glory and the power and the victory of the resurrection apart from going through the agony of a crucifixion. And every single time you choose to apply the crucifixion, now you get to live in the power of the resurrection. I'm telling you guys, I've seen this work out in my own life over and over and over again. I'm not a guy that started out to be in ministry. I'm not a guy that thought I would ever be a pastor. I never dreamed I would ever be a preacher. There was a day, though, that I laid down my life, and I surrendered everything I am for all that he is. I never could have dreamed what that would mean. I never could have understood the God-called destiny upon my life. I never would have known had I not one day came and died. And I want you to see today that you will forfeit the greater things if you try to hang on to the lesser things. So the first time I ever preached was on a Sunday night, Palm Sunday, 1999, and my pastor asked me to fill in one night. First time I'd ever preached, guys. And I'm telling you, I had, uh, I had never been to seminary. I had no training. I mean, I was completely underqualified. I didn't know what I was doing. He asked me to fill in for him one Sunday night. He wasn't going to be there. Just a little bitty church I was going to at the time. Kind of an upstart church plant kind of a church there in Lee Summit. And he asked me to fill in. And uh, there were exactly 12 people in the audience that night. That's it. Little church, Sunday night service. Wasn't sure there would be anybody there. So I secured my audience ahead of time. 
I brought six people with me, two of which was mom and dad. Because if your own mama won't come hear you preach, what hope do you have? Yes? Uh, four were cops I brought along with me because I was a sergeant by then. They couldn't tell me no. So literally that week, I'm like, hey, come hear Sarge preach. And they did. There was, so there was the six, four cops that I worked with, uh, my mom and dad. And uh, that was that night. There were other people in the audience. Six other people were there, one of which was a member of our church's board which might have been why a few months later when our pastor resigned this little church, it's a Tuesday night, I'm at the police station, I'm on duty, and this board member calls me up and says, Phil, we have nobody to preach on Sunday, I have bad news, our pastor has resigned, will you come fill in one Sunday? That was it. Can you come just fill in this one time on Sunday morning? Now here's the deal, I don't think it's that he thought I was that good, I think the situation was actually really that bad. Okay? Yeah. But he'd heard me a few months earlier. He's like, well, Phil, Phil will do it. We're just this little church anyway. We don't, have, you know, we, we don't have any real pastoral staff at this point to speak of. Uh, and, and so it's just a one and done. I thought it was going to be one and done. It's the second time I've ever preached in my life was on a Sunday morning. I, I was scared out of my mind. I was. I was scared out of my mind. Now understand, I had been a SWAT cop. I had done scary things. I'd been in scary places. I had been shot at at close range. Winston Churchill said the most exhilarating thing in life is to be shot at and missed. The ultimate adrenaline dump, I'm telling you, it'll get your life right with Jesus, I, I promise you. I'm not making this up, so I've been witnessing on the police department to appear for a long, long time, and uh, he wouldn't come to Christ, and we had lots of gospel conversations, but he was really resistant to the gospel. We're staying on a street corner one night. Car pulls by, pop, 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 bang, 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 shoots at us, drive by. Bullet goes through right here, his jacket. Bullet hole in his jacket. He got saved the next day. <laughs> Life-changing. Telling you, I've never been so scared. I show up to preach that Sunday. What was I fearful of? Fearful of failure. Fearful of failure. I was afraid to fail. I was afraid of what people might think. I was afraid I would look bad in front of them, stupid in front of them, that, that they would have a poor opinion if they heard. I was afraid, fearful. The, the, the fear of man is what controls a lot of people. And so to my amazement, they asked me to do it again a second week. I thought it'd be one and done. Now it's going to be two and done. And then they asked me to do it again a third week. Again, I don't think it's that I was that good. I think the situation was that bad, all right? And there I am, three weeks in a row. And then they asked me just to fill in as the interim until we found a real preacher, a real pastor. I agreed to do that. And so there I am, that fall of 1999. I'm a preacher six days a week. I, I'm sorry, I'm a policeman six days a week. I'm preacher on Sunday. And then they did something I never would have dreamed coming, guys, because I'm so underqualified. Like, I am not ready for any of this. I have just barely began my training. I have no mentoring. I, they did something that, um, that I never saw coming. They asked me to actually candidate for the position. Bob Bear, a man that pastors up here for a long, long time, a seasoned man of God at the time, he is the one and the only one that looked in my eyes one day across from the breakfast table and said, no, I don't think you're crazy. I think you ought to go for it. 
Because everybody else I talked to thought I was crazy. Like, I'm a cop. What do I know? I have no training. I mean, I know how to serve a search warrant. But as for pastor, I don't know what I'm doing. Sometimes it just takes one voice, one man who believes. And I'm trying to tell you today, if nobody else has said you got what it takes, I'm here to tell you today, you got what it takes. Because the Spirit of God is living in you to take you above your ability, to play above your pay grade. You've got the supernatural power of God upon your life. So there I am. They asked me an interview, and I did. And you know what I did the very next day? I pulled my name out of consideration. I'm running for my life. I said, guys, hey, man, I'm flattered. I'm honored you would ask. But honestly, this can't be of God. I'm just not ready for this. You know the most miserable person on earth? It's a child of God out of the will of God. For the next three weeks, I am running from God. I'm under so much conviction. You guys all know the story of Jonah. Jonah, the prophet that ran from the call of God, went the opposite direction than God called him to go. That was me. I'm running from the call of God. Jonah ends up in the belly of a whale. I know what it is to live for three weeks in the belly of a whale, completely out of the will of God, miserable, could not sleep. I get up midnight. I call the head of the pulpit committee back. I said, Kendall, I don't know what God is doing. I just know I can't sleep. I know I have to say yes. At least put my name back in for consideration. If you guys don't call me, that's good. That's fine. I'll get behind the next pastor. I just know I need to say yes. And in that moment, I became fearless. Now listen carefully. You know what I had to do to become fearless? I had to become selfless. See, to get over my fear, I had to get over myself. And that's when you begin to come alive. It's when you choose to lay down your life and die. See, most of us live all of our life trying to hang on to our life, preserve our life, save our life. And what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 8 is only when you let go of your life and lay down your life and quit worrying about your life, trying to save your life, will you really begin living in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, whosoever will seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. You see, I was so worried about failure because it was all about me and what people might think of me and what people might see. And the moment I chose to die is when I became fully alive. I can tell you about that same church, just trying to keep the doors open. A wintry, nasty day, the last Sunday of 1999, about 25 people are there. Horrible time. You know, most church plants flounder in the first five years. We were about to be a statistic. The church that never was. The devil knows the potential in your life. God does too. The devil knows the potential of that church. And he was trying to put the nail in the coffin of that little church in 1999 because he knew the possibilities. He knew what might be. I stand up the last Sunday of 1999 when I think it can't get any worse. The situation is toxic. It's not healthy. And I make an announcement that our one staff member left. The worship slash youth pastor had been in an immoral relationship and had to resign. Now we've got no paid staff left. They got a cop that's preaching of all people. And I make that announcement. I think to myself, this could be our last Sunday ever. 
And I don't remember what I said that day. I really don't remember what I preached that day. It was somewhere from the Proverbs. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises up again. I'm trying to give hope to this little church. Like, we can rise up. I don't remember really what I said, but I remember what I did. I gave an altar call that day, and 25 people that were there that day. And here's what I said. If you will come to this altar and get on your knees with me and die and dig in and petition God to come save our church, we will not let our church die, then I'm going to ask you to come right now. And every single person there that day came that day, not a dry eye in the place, and we got on our knees in that little bitty brick building, a former kingdom hall. Seriously, we bought it from the Jehovah's Witness. Exercised all the demons, kicked them out. Started having church, preaching the gospel. There we are in that little former kingdom hall, 25 people. We got on our knees together the last Sunday of 1999, and 25 people died, and the church lived. See, that is always the paradox. I had to die so that I could come fully alive. I had to get over myself to get over my fear. That church had to die. We had to die. Listen, anywhere historically that Christians have been persecuted and made to die, the church has thrived. Only where Christians have been left alone to live has the church died. And I'm convinced this is the missing piece in modern American churchianity. We focus on the cross on which Jesus died but we have forgotten there's a cross on which we've been called to die. And because we will not live the life of a martyr, we don't live a life of Acts 1-8 power. The degree you die is the degree you will come fully alive. I can tell you we had a funeral for that little church. In March of 2000, I went to bid a cop. I woke up a pastor, and we had a funeral in May of 2000. Literally, for the church that was, we buried it, and when it was resurrected, it's the church we now call Abundant Life. And those 25 people that got on their knees and died that day in 1989 became the seed for the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that we now reach and minister the gospel to every Sunday. It's what Jesus said in John 12, 24, I could go on and on and on, except a grain of wheat, do what? Fall on the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That single kernel of wheat has the power to give life to many. You hang on to it, you've got one seed, you've got one life. You can hang on to it and preserve it, or you can let go of it and bury it. And God will use your life and multiply it hundreds and hundreds, even thousands and thousands fold. What will you do? Hang on? Or will you let go? The power of the resurrection is available to every single Christian. But it demands more than a commitment. It demands consecration. It demands a crucifixion. It was 1989, 21 years of age. 
I'd been raised in a godly home, been raised in a Christian family by very, very godly parents. I knew the truth. I knew the gospel by the time I was 12. I mean, I knew all the Bible stories. I mean, I had pretty good theology, even in my adolescence, because I'd been raised in a Bible-believing church by really Bible-believing parents. I mean, I was a vacation Bible school kid, perfect attendance. I'm talking Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night visitation, Wednesday night prayer meeting. I was drugged to church. People ask sometimes, Phil, should I make my kids go to church? Yes. <laughs> I'm probably here today because my mama made me go to church. Of course, they didn't want to go to church. There I was. But by the time I was a teenager, I was living in Luke chapter 15. You remember the story of the prodigal son? That was me. I'm a prodigal son. I am living in rebellion against God. I am living in sin. By the time I went off to Lawrence, Kansas on a full-ride football scholarship, I am living the dream. Finally, no accountability, no curfew. Every night's a party, party hardy. That was me. I'm the prodigal son. I know the truth. I haven't abandoned the truth. I'm just running from the truth. I don't want to be accountable to the truth. I had what we call today FOMO, fear of missing out. That was me as a young man. There I am in Lawrence, Kansas, as the prodigal son. You guys know the story. He leaves the father's house. He cashes out in his inheritance, goes into the far country. It's not long before he's in a place of bankruptcy. He's now slopping the hogs, of course, pigs, abomination to the Jews. Jesus is painting the story. He's using images that are reprehensible to his audience. I mean, to think about a Jewish man that is now feeding the pigs and literally feeding with the pigs in the pig pen. That is always the the end of sin. There I was in Lawrence, Kansas. See, there's a promise in scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And he that is without chastening is an illegitimate son. Meaning if you're really born again and you're really a child of God, you may sin, but you cannot win. You may have a blast, but it will not last. You may backslide, but you will slide back up again. Kicking and screaming, but God will get you. He will chasten you if you're really, truly a child of God. Now, if you're not, if you're a Christian in name only, and this world is full of Christians in name only, they profess Christ, they don't possess Christ. No, what he says is you're an illegitimate child. I'm not going to chasten you. You don't belong to me. You're not one of mine. But if indeed you're really a child of God, you cannot live in sin without eventually coming under conviction and chastening. That was me, 21 years of age. There I am running from God, wrestling with God, but I won't give up. I won't give in. Living in mediocrity, I'm going down a pathway of sin, destruction, addiction, captivity. Coming back from school, 1989, 435 in State Line right here in Kansas City, Missouri. I still think about it when I go across the interstate in that very place. That's where it happened. I got run off the road by an 18-wheeler semi. The tracks in the snow tell the story. I crossed over the median into oncoming traffic. I'm now going the wrong way on the interstate. I'm completely out of control. I'm doing 360s. I crossed back over the median into eastbound traffic where I had come from. I look up in that moment. It's just like you hear people say, in life and death moments, time seems to slow down. Everything is in slow-mo, even though it's taking only milliseconds. It's amazing what you have time to think about in those milliseconds where time has just seemed to slow down. I look up, I see another 18-wheeler coming right at me. I know that we are about to collide, and in that moment, I resign my life. 
In that moment, I realized I am going to die. I resigned my life, and I will never forget what I thought right before collision. I know there's a heaven. I know there's a hell. I don't know where I'm going, but I guess I'm going to know now. Because I knew I was going to die. I knew that I was going to close my eyes in time. I knew I was going to open up my eyes in eternity. And I did not know what I was about to see. I don't know where I'm going, but I guess I'm going to know now. As you can see, I lived. Well, that's good news, at least for me. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad I lived. Nobody else is glad I lived. Well, this is what I tell people. Listen carefully. That day is actually the day I died. I went home that day, having walked away miraculously from what amounted to a hopeless collision. It should have been a fatality. I walked home that day because I didn't have a car. I got on my bedroom floor where I had come home many nights before having broke curfew in a drunken stupor in complete rebellion against my parents, rebellion against my God. And on that same bedroom floor, I got on my knees. I repented of my sin. I went to a funeral that day in 1989, a funeral that changed my life forever. And that funeral was mine. And that day I died on my bedroom floor. But when I stood up, a resurrection took place. And somebody brand new now lived. I'm trying to tell you that day in 1989 is when I died. And all these years later, I have never been more alive. And today is the day for some of us here to go home and have a funeral. I'm talking about your own. Today is a day to give Jesus more than a commitment, but to take up a cross, choose the crucifixion, choose consecration, and I will absolutely promise you, if you will choose the crucifixion, a life of consecration, you will live in the power of the resurrection, and God will do things through your life you never, ever dreamed possible. You will begin to live fearless, because for the first time, you'll become truly selfless. And then you can live in the promise of Galatians 2.20, not I, but Christ who lives in me.